0: Rabbit! Oh, no, no. You're not gonna eat me. Oh, his dream was so real he could see the exact same place where the treasure was buried.
1: He loved to study the Latin dictionary and he knew any princess would want to talk about the Latin dictionary. We love stories!
2: It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, and today's episode is filled with laughter and luck and love. You're going to hear from Sheila Arnold with a story about Possum, who accidentally leaves his brain at home. You'll enjoy an entry in the Radio Family Journal and a conversation with Anthony Bercher. You're going to hear a story called Blockhead Hans, a story in which you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room to win the heart of the princess. You'll hear a story from Noah Baum called Treasure Under the Bridge about a guy who dreams the same dream every night until he decides the only thing left to do is try to follow its advice. And after that, Jim Bruchak will treat us to a classic Gluskabe tale. Gluskabe Changes Some Animals is the name of that story. And finally, we'll finish off with Norman Walker's feel-good song, the sun is returning. You'll laugh, you'll learn, you'll be glad you've been with us. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingurance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me.
3: Hi, I love being here, Sam.
2: You know, this is a story by Sheila Arnold. Tell us a little bit about it. It's kind of a fable, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is a story about a a possum and a snake. Surprise, right? (laughs) Um, And... One morning, Possum does something very relatable. He leaves his brain at home. You know, (laughs) we've all done that a day or two. And it is about... All the trickery that he gets into, you know, even with a good intention, um, because he just left his brain at home that day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) These terrific little fables of Sheila Arnold—some of them are original stories, you know—but they're built like these, you know, uh, these these ageless stories that sort of teach us how to be good human beings. That Mm -hmm. tends to be what animal stories are about, right? They're really about us, as you say, those of us who. Leave our brains at home from time to time. (laughs) The story is Possum and Snake. The teller is Sheila Arnold, and we're happy to bring it to you here
4: on The Appleseed. Where are you supposed to keep your brains? I am hopeful, you said, in your head. But sometimes folks forget to keep their brains in their head. Really, it's true. Some folks put their brains in their feet, and I know this because they start walking the wrong direction. Some folks put their brains in their hands. And I know this because they start doing the wrong thing. Some folks put their brains in their mouth, ugh, and it tastes bad. But I know this because they start saying the wrong things. You need to keep your brains in your head where they belong. One day, Brer Possum forgot his brains. He woke up that morning. It was a glorious morning. It had been raining and windy and cold every other day for two weeks. But on that morning, it was glorious. Not a cloud in the sky blue. And possum, he went straight out the door and he forgot his brains on the dresser. He started walking and singing. It's a good day. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah, I'm walking along, singing the song. It's a good day. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah, I'm walking along, singing a song. It's a good day. Yes. Help me. Possum stopped. He thought he heard something. He looked around, but he didn't see anything. So he went back to singing. It's a good day. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah, I'm walking along, singing this song. It's a good day. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah. S-S-S
1: Help me.
4: Possum stopped again. He looked around, he looked down, and there he saw it. Snake. Snake was underneath a rock, and he couldn't move. Please, help me. Uh, I don't think I'm supposed to help you. Please, I hurt. Help me. No, no, I don't think I'm supposed to help you, but I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Please, I hurt, help me. Well, possum had forgot his brains, so without thinking, he walked over, picked that rock up off of the snake, threw that rock aside and backed up real quick, and then started walking. It's a good day, yeah, it's a good day. Yeah, I'm walking along, singing a song, Help me I'm c- c- cold Uh Noah, I don't want to help you. Snake come right up there to Possum one more time. Noah, I don't want to help you. Please. I'm c- c- cold. I can't help you with that, that's for sure. Please Put me in your p- 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 pocket. You see, possums have a pocket where they keep their babies at. Oh, uh, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Please. I'm um, cold. C- c- I'll put you in my pocket. You won't bite me? No, I won't bite you. Please help me. So Possum bent down, opened his pocket, and dropped down Snake. He stood there for a minute. He didn't want to walk yet. It's a good day. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah, I'm walking along, singing a song, it's a good day. Possum opened his pocket, peeked in, and there was Snake all curled up and sleeping. It's a good day yeah it's a good day yeah i'm walking along singing a song it's a good day yeah it's a good day yeah i'm walking along singing a song it's a good day yeah it's a good day yeah then without any warning snake popped up I'm gonna bite you. No, no, you said you weren't gonna bite me. You said you weren't gonna bite me. Why are you gonna do that? I'm gonna bite you because I'm a snake and snakes bite. That's what we do. Oh, no, you can't bite me. Yes, I can. And you'll make a good dinner. Well, well, can I go home and tell my mama you gonna kill me? Yes, but make it quick. And snake went back down into possum's pocket. Well, possum started walking and hollering, "A good die!" Snake'll kill me! He was hollering and screaming and making such a racket that he woke up brother rabbit. Brother rabbit walked over and he see what that hollering was about. Went over to possum and said, "What's wrong with you? Why are you hollering so?" <laughs> I'm going to die. You're going to die? How you going to die? Snake going to kill me. Rabbit looked around trying to figure out where the snake was. Where's the snake at? In my pocket. In your pocket? Yeah. How did a snake get in your pocket? I put him there. You put him there. Don't you know better than to do that? I do (laughs) now. Well, Brother Rabbit asked him, You want me to help you out? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right then. Brother Snake, Brother Snake. Snake came up. Ooh, I like Rabbit. Oh, no, no. You're not going to eat me. I'm just trying to find out where you were when you got in the possum's pocket so I can tell his mama, Mama Possum, and you can get to eating on Possum here. We tell you, you let us go? Uh Uh-huh. All right, make it quick, Possum. So Snake curled back into the pocket and Possum started walking back to the spot where Snake had talked to him. It was right here. It was right here. Snake came up to me. He said, uh, go, 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 go. put me in a pocket. And he said, He won't go bite me. He said, He won't go bite me, but he ain't tell the truth. It ain't right. It ain't right. It ain't right now. <laughs> Snake came out and looked around. Yeah, it was right here. But Rabbit said, Where were you before Possum picked you up? Why you want to know? It's for Mama Possum i tell you rabbit and you promise leave us alone oh snake i promise all right then then snake came out of possum's pocket and slid down possum's leg to the ground possum followed snake and said yeah yeah snake was right over here he was over here right there yes i was right here yes he was right here just like this because he had this rock and Possum went over and picked up the rock, and the rock was on top of him, and he took that rock and he put it on top of Snake, and then the snake couldn't move. And I was looking at him, and he couldn't and he couldn't move. And I was looking at him, and he couldn't move, and I was looking at him, and... Oh! The snake can't move! And that was right, because Possum had put that rock right back on Snake, and he couldn't move anymore. Ooh, ooh, I remember what my brain would have said. If you see trouble, you get to going. You get to going and trouble won't come. Watch where you're walking. What you're doing, what you're saying, put your brains in your head where they belong. If you see trouble, you get to going, you get to going and trouble won't come. Watch where you're walking, what you're doing, what you're saying, put your brains in your head where they belong. If you see trouble, you get to going, you get to going and trouble won't come. Watch where you're walking, what you're doing, what you're saying, put your brains in your head where they belong. Put your brains in your head where they belong. Put your brains in your head where they belong. So, I want you to remember to put your brains in your head. You don't put your brains in your feet because you might walk the wrong way. You don't put your brains in your hands because you might do the wrong thing, and you don't put your brains in your mouth (laughs) because you might say the wrong thing. You put your brains in your head where they belong. You put your brains in your head where they belong. You put your brains in your head where they belong. Put your brains in your head, where they belong.
2: Sheila Arnold with a story called Possum and Snake. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm singing it, Alyssa. You put your, I know, you right? You put your brains in your head where they belong, right?
3: Absolutely. It stays with you. <laughs> That's right.
2: And, of course, this is a terrific little fable. You know, fables, these often animal stories that help people understand how they ought to behave, right? Mm-hmm. The purpose of a fable. Tell us what you love about this story, Alyssa.
3: Yeah, I think with this story, the charm for it really comes from the telling of Sheena, of Sheila Arnold herself. You know, uh, I think whether she's telling like a personal tale or a super old fable or one she just made up on her own, she always just makes it seem like this story has just always existed, <laughs> and it's just it makes you feel cozy, and you're all oh, you're just. It takes me back to like being a little kid and that's exactly the kind of voice you would want to hear like reading to you at the library or like before you went to bed at night. You know, I just... It's so good.
2: Sheila Arnold tells stories like this. She's also a a story educator and has done a lot of storytelling work, telling stories in character as historical characters. And that work Mm -hmm. is also fascinating to watch. Such a pleasure to listen to Possum and Snake by Sheila Arnold. And Alyssa, thanks for joining me to listen to it.
3: Absolutely. I love it.
2: There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, you heard the story by Sheila Arnold, a story called Possum and Snake about a possum who leaves his brain at home. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Julie Barneson and Noah Baum and a gluskabe story from Jim Bruschek. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room. Here's a memory of mine, a memory of an old record album. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
1: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the apple seed.
2: When I was a kid, my family had some friends who ran a preschool. We loved visiting them, especially when we were tiny. The preschool was on the main floor of their family home, and the family lived in the basement. The basement looked just like a regular place someone might live, but upstairs, was a wonderland. There were colorful bookshelves, rooms dedicated to crafts of one kind or another, places to paint and spill, make a mess and clean it up and keep going at that as long as you liked. And in the background, there was always music. And our favorite music to listen to during visits to our friends was on an album called Spin, Spider, Spin. It was filled with songs written by Patti Zeitlin and Marsha Berman, a couple of musicians and teachers. The songs were all about insects and reptiles, spiders, snakes, and bees, and stuff like that. And each song had something to say that might help a young listener understand the animal the song was about, and also be less afraid of that animal. There was a song about bees that said, if they fly by your eye, try to be steady and still. If they fly by your nose, just be ready until you can watch them go home. Watch them fly through the trees. They will leave you alone. That's the way of the bees. And there was a beautiful melancholy song sung by a creature that was never named in the song. The creature sang, Winding down the dusty road, no one walks behind me. Winding down the dusty road, I hope no man may find me. No human have I tried to harm, though men hold me to blame. I'm searching for a place that's warm as secret as my name i seek the silence of the sand the silence of the prairie moon the silence says i understand i will let you go your way Carry your tune. I recite those lyrics now, and I can see how much a product of their time they are. But when I was seven or eight, I thought I had stumbled onto some heavy poetry, man. And what's best, it was a mystery song, and we who were listening were left to figure out what the creature was. We always thought that since the animal was winding down the road and that it needed to be someplace warm and that people blamed it for certain harms, that it must be a snake. I still think it's about a snake, though I guess I still don't know for sure. The song never does say, absolutely. All these songs designed for kids to help them leave all of the wonder in their interactions with nature, all of that intact, but to take away the fear Well, we loved those songs very much, and we loved to visit our friends in order to hear them. In those days, we lived in a place where we were likely to have random encounters with snakes or bees or spiders. Maybe that's every place. Maybe you live in a place like that, too. And because it was so easy to perceive those things with an eye of enmity, it did us a lot of good to have some sort of influence in our young lives that helped us look at those things with an eye of if not brotherhood, then at least co-creaturehood, right? Since then, I've had snakes as pets, We're preparing even now to help our daughter set up as an apiarist, a beekeeper. I've met and loved animals that might once have frightened me. And that's not to say that I haven't delivered the death blow to my share of mosquitoes or houseflies. And it doesn't mean I haven't avoided the claw or stinger end of one of my animal brothers every now and then. I'll give a lot of space to a critter that looks like it needs it. Overcoming the fear isn't the same as embracing the fang, but... I think I'm more inclined than I might otherwise have been to look with a friendly eye on my fellow animals. But even more than their effect on my interaction with the animal world, I think those early interactions with songs and stories like the ones on the Spin Spider Spin album helped me see people with an eye of brotherhood animal songs, animal stories are really there partly to teach us about ourselves. I think often of a conversation I had with storyteller and songwriter Bill Harley who cited that one of the byproducts of his travels around the world on the performing stage meeting all kinds of people was that he saw them as fellows. But that's a paraphrase. What Bill actually said was, I'm not afraid of anybody. And in a world filled with anybody's to feel one way or another about, that seems like a pretty good place to be.
1: The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories that you can share as stories with the people that you love. If it happens to you with something that you've heard on The Appleseed, let us know. You can reach out to us at our email address, theappleseed at BYU. Edu. Again, that's the appleseed at BYU.edu. Stories from Noah Baum and Jim Bruchak, a little music by Norman Walker coming up. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we read, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and talking about how great stories come into our lives with friends is something that we love to do here on the Appleseed. I'm pleased to be joined by Anthony Birchard. Now, you've heard Anthony's stories on the Appleseed before. I'm here in the Appleseed studio. He is far away in his home, and it's such a pleasure to have you with us, Anthony.
5: It is my pleasure to be here, and I love the idea of talking about the inspirations for stories. I'm <laughs> going to share kind of an a unusual inspiration for one of my stories, and that was a history talk, and not just a history talk, but the very first line of that talk. Hmm. Now, being a teacher, I think that needs explaining. and so uh for 20 for 20 some years now besides storytelling i have another job i work in the history field i work for a local museum here in virginia i travel the entire state of virginia talking about john smith and pocahontas and you can figure out which (laughs) museum that is sure and uh it's a wonderful job they give me a van a box full of artifacts travel all over and there was this one school uh inner city richmond and these kids, they didn't care one bit about history, didn't affect their lives, or they thought it didn't affect their lives one bit. And they didn't wanna hear history from me. So it was a hard job. Plus this school I went to was one of those schools that I call the, the tail wags the dog. Yeah. The students were in, the, in control, not the staff, not the sure. teachers, the students were definitely in control. And that was fine because um, I had history to teach, love teaching history. And Jamestown is the story of uh, Powhatan Indians, Powhatan Indians, Europeans and Africans. those three cultures come together at Jamestown. Yeah. And so uh, I'd telling that history to kids. And, but as year after year after I went to this school, I noticed it was getting better. This one school was actually getting better. The, the, te- the teachers were taking back control. I think they got a new principal. It just got a pleasure to actually go there. And then one year they did something amazing. They had an actual history day, an entire day of history for their <laughs> students. Oh, this is awesome because and they invited me back, which is kind, but they put me in this trailer and during the day, five different classes came through and they'd sit on the floor mm. and I would talk about history. And when I have a tough situation, I'm super excited, super crazy in front of the kids, have a great time with the artifacts and whatnot, but it's a hard sell to teach kids their history mm. sometimes. And I I was looking at the schedule, though. I'd seen some of the other presenters. At the very end of the day, they were going to have this Holocaust survivor Hmm. talk, not to one one class, but the entire school. And I said, I'm going to that. I've (laughs) never met a Holocaust survivor. I said, this will be good for me. And so uh, I did my five classes. They were tough, but I got through them. And these were tough inner city kids, but we did fine. I headed down to that wonderful place called the Cafetorium. You know what I'm talking <laughs> sure. about, yeah. half Kastri, half Artur. went down there, all the students were sitting on the floor, and um, the principal came in, and on her arm, she had this old, old fella, and, and he, he was, I would say, in his 80s, maybe even 90s, little mm-hmm. small man, and she took him to a little stool up front, and she took the microphone, and she got the kids all quiet, and I was studying that man, I'd never met a Holocaust survivor before, and I said, no way, this little man right here, there's no way he's ever going to get the attention of these kids. I've got 20 years of experience talking to kids. He's, he stands no chance. but uh, I was truly I uh, see, I forgot that that lesson I learned in kindergarten about judging books by their covers. Oh sure. but yeah. th- there it was, and so she 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 got the kids all quiet. She had her microphone, and then she handed the microphone to, to the to the Holocaust survivor. This wonderful old man, he took the microphone and in barely a whisper, he could barely talk. He, he had the best opening and he looked at all, all those faces and he said, raise your hands. If you have ever been a slave. And in that moment, the wall of silence just hit. It was incredible. Jaws dropped. Mine was on the floor. This little old man knew he was to, who he was talking to and he had the credentials to back it up. Hmm. He said, I was a slave for the Nazis. They came and took me as a teenager, had me build roads. I lived in a concentration camp. And finally, I was was sick and on death's door, and the Russians came and liberated us. He Hmm. said, but I was a slave. And from that moment, he had those children so much better than I did all day long because he had the experience to back it up. So it took that, that lesson there to teach me that, you know, you don't judge a book by its cover. Mm. No. You know, you, you,
2: you see so many as you talk about these kids who don't think that history affects them. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think back to the people that I went to school with and and as an adult, m- many of the students that I know and and there is kind of a, a, a really magical moment when something from history catches your imagination. You know, and it clicks, and it's... and you you see that happen, and suddenly a door gets opened, and you realize, oh good heavens, I'm part of a human family that uh, started before me and will go mm-hmm. on after me, and uh, and stepping up into that into that lineup of history, right, is a remarkable
5: thing to see a kid do, isn't it? It uh, truly amazing, yeah. and uh, this this guy, as you can tell, he blew me away. He understood. Not just history, but his part in history, yeah. and the need to share that, and to, to keep that that knowledge going. It's, yeah. it's so important. Yeah. Well, Anthony
2: Bercher, thank you for sharing with us that you know th- those those moments become memories that fuel a lot for you, fueling the creation of storytelling material and the continued engagement with young people. Thank you for sharing it with us.
5: My pleasure.
2: I gotta tell you, if you want to hear more great Anthony Bercher stuff, you can visit his website, AnthonyBircher.com. Of course, you can find Anthony Bercher's stories in episodes of the Appleseed as well, that you can find at byuradioorg appleseed. Anthony, pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. Good to be with you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Anthony Bircher, And in a moment, we're going to bring you a story called Blockhead Hans from Julie Barnes and an old tale made new by a great teller. It's coming up in just a minute. I'm Sam Payne.
1: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam
3: Payne.
2: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. And up next, we're going to hear a story called Blockhead Hans about three brothers heading off to try to win the hand of the princess in marriage. Hans is the youngest brother, not considered too bright, but he still has high hopes. How's it going to turn out for Hans? What are you going to find out in this story? Blockhead Hans, told for you by Julie Barneson, here on The Appleseed.
1: (music) When the Princess Griselda turned 16 years old, she decided it was time to get married. But she didn't want to marry just anyone. She had been taught by the finest scholars in the land. She was a smart girl, and she wanted to marry a smart boy. She had met the other princes, the other noblemen, and they weren't so smart. They liked to talk about their dogs, their horses, hunting, boring. And so she decided that if a nobleman wasn't good enough, she would marry anyone, prince or peasant. So she took an ad out in the newspaper and she sent the proclamation out that anybody who wished to marry the princess could come to the castle at a specified time and impress her with their wit and conversation and intelligence. And she would choose the best one to marry. The news traveled far and wide until it came to the home of a squire who had two sons who thought they were very intelligent indeed. The older brother, Gregory, he loved to study the Latin dictionary, and he knew any princess would want to talk about the Latin dictionary. He was also up on his current events because he read the newspaper every day. The younger brother, Friedrich, he loved to read big, thick tomes of law and knew that any princess would want to discuss anything in a big, thick tome of law. He also liked leatherworking and could talk about that all day long. So they approached their father and told him of their plans to marry the princess. Their father was, of course, delighted. He outfitted them with fine new suits, gave them each a bag of gold a new steed gathered all of the servants together into the courtyard where they waved and cheered as they rode off to marry the princess. Now, the squire had another son. He was not so smart. They called him Blockhead, Blockhead Hans. And at the time the brothers were riding away, he was daydreaming in the field, chewing on a piece of grass, playing with his pet goat. He heard the cheering, and curious, he wandered into the courtyard and asked a servant what was going on. The servant said, well, your brothers are going off to marry the princess. Princess, he said. I want to marry the princess. So he went to his father. Father, I want to marry the princess. You, the squire said, I'm not wasting good money on you. You don't have a chance of marrying the princess. Some people might be discouraged by this, but not Hans. Well, he said, if you won't give me new clothes, I'll wear the rags I've got. If you won't give me a bag of gold, I'll pick up whatever I find on the road, and I'll just ride my pet goat if I don't have a horse. And that's exactly what he did. He rode off, and nobody cheered him. Gregory and Friedrich had been riding for some time in peace and quiet, when behind them they heard a terrible noise. It was, Hey, wait for me! And there was their brother, dressed in rags, riding a goat, waving his arms frantically. He came up to them, wiped his brow. Whoa! I am so glad I caught up with you guys. I found something so amazing by the side of the road. He reached into one of his pockets. His pants had many large pockets, and he pulled out A cracked wooden shoe." The brothers looked. It's a cracked wooden shoe, they said. Yeah, I know. It's great. You don't find wooden shoes by the side of the road every day. So I picked it up and I put it in my pocket and I'm going to give it to the princess. The brothers stared then started to laugh. They turned and rode off down the road, leaving the slower Hans far behind. They rode in peace and quiet for a short time until behind them. They heard it again. It was, Hey, wait for me. And there he was again coming up. "Oh," He said, I got something even better by the side of the road. This time he reached into another pocket. He pulled something out. The brothers stepped back. Why did you put a dead bird in your pocket? This isn't just any dead bird, he said. It's a crow. Look at it. It has nice soft feathers and they're kind of rainbowy in the light. And I picked it up and I put it in my pocket and I'm going to give it to the princess. Horrified, the brothers stared for a moment, then laughed and took off down the road, leaving Hans far behind. They rode in peace and quiet. For almost an hour, when behind them, there it was again, it was Hans waving his arms, calling out, coming up on the goat. He said, I got the best thing yet. He reached into still another pocket. He pulled out a handful of mud. Why did you put mud in your pockets? well this isn't just any mud this is really good ditch mud look it's all dark and and rich and wonderful and i filled the rest of my pockets with it and i'm gonna give it to the princess and she's going to love me that was all the brothers needed to hear they turned they rode off and they didn't stop until they got to the castle where they found themselves at the end of a very very long line They were given numbers, 647, 648. And they waited as person after person in front of them went into the castle and did not come back out. Finally, it was Gregory's turn. He walked into the throne room. It was stifling hot and he had no idea there would be so many people crammed into the sides of the throne room, all staring right at him. The floor of the throne room was slick and shiny marble, and at the end of the throne room, on the throne was, oh, the princess. She was amazing. His collar felt tight. He felt a little shaky. He knew he needed to calm down just a little bit, so trying to loosen his collar, he looked up at the ceiling to gain his composure. That was a mistake. The ceiling was studded with mirrors, and so when he looked up, all he saw was his own red, nervous face looking right back at him. Carefully, he made his way to the throne. She waited expectantly. Um, oh, it's, uh, hot in here, he said yes we're roasting chickens today she said smiling sweetly what what did chickens have to do with the latin dictionary everything he had planned everything he had practiced it went completely out of his head he couldn't think of a thing to say he stood there stupidly until finally the princess sighed and said next And then it was Friedrich's turn and it was the same thing. The heat, the people, the shining floor, the princess, the studded mirrors. He approached the throne. Oh, it sure is hot in here, he said. Yes, we're roasting chickens today. Oh, it sure is hot in here. Next. But that was the end of the line. The princess was starting to think she was never going to get married when a commotion started up right at the entrance to the throne room. Coming straight into the throne room, dressed in rags, riding a goat, came a young man. The goat's hooves hit the slick marble floor, and it slid all the way across the throne room until it came to a stop right in front of the throne. "'Whew! It's hot in here,' he said." "'Yes, we're roasting chickens today,' she said, smiling. "'Well, great,' he said. "'I've got something to roast, too.' He reached into a pocket. He pulled out the dead crow. "'I can roast this.' "'Well, that would be fine,' she said. "'I hope you brought your own pot to cook it in. "'We don't have any to spare.' "'A pot? I've got something!' He reached into the other pocket, pulled out the wooden shoe, "'stuffed the bird inside. "'How's that for a cooking pot?' (laughs) That's fine, she said, but if you roast it like that, it's going to come out awfully dry. You're going to need some kind of gravy. Gravy? Oh yeah, I've got some gravy. He reached out, pulled out a handful of mud and splooched it right on top of that bird. How's that for gravy? (laughs) Oh, you are so funny, she said. You are the first person today who has said more to me than, oh, it's so hot in here. You must be very clever indeed. I think that I shall marry you. Well, Hans was happy about that. She said, but if you take a look over in the crowd over there, there's that man that's writing down everything we say. He is a reporter for the newspaper. And you need to know that he is an absolutely terrible reporter. He takes the things that people say, and he makes them sound very foolish. What are you going to do about that? Hans knew exactly what to do. He got on his goat, slid his goat right over to that reporter, reached out, got another handful of mud and splooched it right into that reporter's face. And that is how Blockhead Hans married the Princess Griselda and became king in time over the land. I happen to know that this story is true because I read about it in the newspaper. And you know you can always believe anything you read in the newspaper. (laughs)
2: <laughs> a little tongue-in-cheek ending there to the story of Blockhead Hans, told for you by Julie Barneson. And coming up, a story called Treasure Under the Bridge by Noah Baum, a story about the crazy consequences that can come when you find yourself plagued with a dream that you just can't understand. Noah Baum is the storyteller, Treasure Under the Bridge is the tale. Happy to bring it to you on The Ample Seat.
0: In a small town called Tarnow in Poland, that's the town my grandmother grew up in. In Tarnow there lived a very poor man. This poor man was called Isaac Beniekko. He worked hard trying to earn a living to support his wife and his five children. And one night he had a strange and wonderful dream. In his dream he saw that a treasure was buried right beneath the pillar of the bridge in Warsaw, the capital city. Oh, his dream was so real, he could see the exact same place where the treasure was buried. And he woke up with a start. Ah, uh, but the roof was still leaking. He was still in Tarnov. It was just a dream. But the following night, he had the same dream again. Once again, he saw the great bridge in Warsaw and the pillar and the place right beneath it where the treasure was buried. It was so real that when he woke up, he told his wife about it. She was peeling potatoes at the kitchen table. She said, no, so you had a dream. Yeah, he said, (laughs) just a dream. But all that day, he couldn't help thinking about all the things that he could do if only he had that treasure. Why, he would buy shoes for the children so they wouldn't have to be barefoot in winter. He he would buy a winter coat for his wife. He would fix the roof. He would even have enough to put in the poor box in the synagogue. That night, he had that dream again. And once again, it was so real that when he woke up, he said to his wife, I think I should go to Warsaw to find that treasure. She said, you want to go to Warsaw because you had a dream. But but not just a dream, he said. Three nights in a row, it's not normal. And to go to Warsaw when you can't feed your children, that's normal. (laughs) He said, I'll walk. And he set out that day in spite of her protests. And he walked for five long days, sleeping at the sides of the roads, And on the sixth day he arrived in Warsaw and he came to the place of the bridge and there he stood frozen for the bridge. It was filled with people and there were carts and wagons and horses going back and forth and this wasn't in his dream. To make matters worse, right near those pillars where the treasure was supposed to be buried there was a soldier standing on guard. Isaac didn't know what to do. He started pacing that bridge back and forth, hoping that maybe when the sun sets, the soldier will go home, the people will go away. Meanwhile, the soldier noticed this man with the clothes of a beggar walking the bridge back and forth and back and forth. Now, that was suspicious. He came right up to him, and he said, Hey, you, what do you want here? And Isaac, he looked up at that soldier... He knew that his one and only chance to stay alive was to tell the truth. And right then and there he decided he would just tell him the whole story and offer to share the treasure, half and half. And so he told him the whole story. And when he did, to his great surprise, the soldier flung his head back and laughed. (laughs) You mean to tell me that you came all the way to Warsaw because you had a dream? (laughs) Oh, you foolish man. Don't you know that everybody dreams? Why, what would happen if everyone just went after their dreams? I myself had a dream the other night. Why, I dreamed that there was a treasure behind the stove in the house of some Yekel Isaac or something or rather in the town called Tarnov. Now, do you see me leaving my good post here at the bridge to go to the other end of Poland for some dream? Go home, my friend. It was just a dream. Isaac went home. He went home as fast as he possibly could. And when he got there, he went straight to that big black stove and pulled it from the wall and there behind it, was a pot full of gold coins and to his astonished wife he said do you see a man can have a treasure in his own home but unless he goes looking for it in warsaw he'll never know that it's there
2: Treasure Under the Bridge, told for you by Noah Baum. And up next, we've got a Gluskabe story for you. Gluskabe, the legendary figure at the center of so many Abenaki stories. The stories of the indigenous peoples of Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and Atlantic Canada. This story told for you by Jim Brushek. It's called Gluskabe Changes Some Animals. And we're happy to bring it to you here on The Apple Seed.
6: This is the story of how Gluskabe changed some of the animals. Long ago, Gluskabe, he gathered all of the Awasak, the animal people together. You see, Gluskabe knew that soon the Onumbak, the human beings would come into the world, and he wanted to make sure that there weren't any animals that would be too dangerous that might kill the Onumbak. And so, When Gluskabe had gathered all of the animals together, Gluskabe said the word for human beings. He said the word, Onumbak. When Gluskabe said this word, the animals were very scared. Those that could fly flew high into the sky. Those that could swim dove into the waters. Those that could run fast ran as far away as they could. Almost all of the animals ran away. The animals were scared because they knew that the Unlumbach would hunt them. All of them, except for two animals. And these two animals were Moose and Red Squirrel. However, Moose and Red Squirrel were much different than they are today. Back then, Moose was five times the size of Moose is today. And Red Squirrel, Red Squirrel was four times the size of the biggest grizzly bear. And these animals were not scared at all. Instead, they got very angry. And so, Be, he first walked up to Moose. He looked at Moose, and he said, Moose, what will you do when you see the first Olenbach? Well, Moose said, mm, when I see the first Olenbach, I will run through their villages. I will toss them up in the air on my horns. And when they land on the ground, I will stomp them into the earth. Hmm. Gluskabe thought. The old won't last too long with an animal as mean as Moose. I think I must change Moose. And so Gluskabe, with all his great powers, he made himself very big. Bigger than the tallest mountain. Much bigger than that giant Moose. And when Gluskabe had made himself this big, he simply put out his hand in front of Moose and he said, Moose, you are very strong. See if you can move me. Moose stepped forward and put his head up against Gluskabe's hand and he began to push. He pushed and he pushed, but he could not move Gluskabe. He pushed harder and harder, but instead, the harder Moose pushed, the smaller Moose got. Moose got smaller and smaller and smaller. Until Moose was the size Moose is today, and then when Gluskabe lifted away his hand, Moose looked around, and Moose noticed that Moose was much smaller than he was before. And Moose thought, huh, if I bother the human beings, Gluskabe, he might make me even smaller. And as we know, to this day, Moose hardly ever bothers the human beings. But if you look at Moose, and you look at Moose's forehead, you can see a black mark. And we say that is the hand of Gluskabe. And also, if you look at Moose, you notice that Moose's neck is kind of scrunched up. And that's because Moose had pushed so hard. And also, Moose's nose is kind of pushed in a little bit. Well, that was a mistake. You see, Glooskabe, he kind of had his fingers on Moose's nose. And to this day, he kind of feels a little bad about it. Well, the next animal was Red Squirrel. And Glooscabe, he walked up to that Red Squirrel and he said, Red Squirrel! What will you do when you see the first Olnbac? Well, Red Squirrel. Red Squirrel began to pick up giant trees and boulders and throw them, and Red Squirrel said, When I see the first human being, I will rip them to pieces. I will tear apart every human being I can find. I will destroy all the human beings on the whole earth. Well Kluska Bay heard this and he thought, Huh? this one is even meaner than moose. I definitely have to change red squirrel. And so, Gluska Bay, who was still very big, he picked up this giant red squirrel in one hand. And when he picked up that giant fearsome red squirrel, he simply began to pet it. He pet that red squirrel ever so gently. And as he began to pet that red squirrel, it began to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Until Red Squirrel was about the size of a bear. But Gluskabe thought, oh, even bear usually runs away when he smells or hears human beings. This one is much too mean. So he went smaller and smaller until Red Squirrel was the size Red Squirrel is today. And Glooskabe simply lifted away his hand. And as soon as he did, that Red Squirrel climbed up to the top of the tallest tree and began yelling down at Bay. And to this day, Red Squirrel still has not lost his hatred for human beings. And if you're ever walking by a tree that a Red Squirrel's in, you'll hear them chattering down at you and throwing acorns and twigs. And you know what they're saying in Red Squirrel language? I'll tear you apart. I'll tear you apart. Well, lucky for us, those are acorns and twigs and not rocks and boulders. And so it is that Gluskabe changed some of the animals.
2: Gluskabe changes some animals. A story told for you by Jim Brushak. I love those Jim Bruchak recordings as if he's telling stories by a campfire. You can hear the crickets and insects of the night chirping about. And it's always a pleasure to hear a Jim Bruschak tale. We're going to wrap up today with a little piece of music from Norman Walker. It's called The Sun is Returning, a song to remind you that even on the darkest and longest nights the sun is coming back around. It will always shine again in the morning. Norman Walker with The Sun is Returning here on the Appleseed.
7: Sleep, and the winding waters froze And the fields and meadows are covered with snows And the nights are longest, it's soon that you will know It's time that the sun is returning So gather and share all the fruits of the land Blend your voices and join your hands In season's circle, in celebration stand, know that the sun is returning. In spring we watch for the crocus to unfold, in midsummer's morning we're strong and we're bold. But at longest night time, when winds are hard and cold, we pray that the sun is returning. So gather and share all the fruits of the land. Blend your voices and join your hands. In season circle, and celebration stand, know that the sun is returning. Seasons passing in pleasure and in pain All things in circles, thus they remain So the circle will now begin again For we know that the sun is returning So gather and share all the fruits of the land Blend your voices and join your hands Seasons circle, celebration stand, know that the sun is returning. So gather and share all the fruits of the land, blend your voices and join your hands. Season circle, celebration stand, know that the sun is returning.
2: The Sun is Returning, a little piece of music by Norman Walker to round out our hour of stories together. And, uh, of course, I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. We'll see you next time on The Appleseed.
1: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.